Next up was Michael Hopcroft. All right, welcome to RPG Showcase, Michael. It's good to have you here. Thanks. Glad to be here. All right. To start off, why don't you give us some background information on yourself? Who is Michael Hopcroft, and what got you into gaming? Well, I got into gaming years and years and years ago when my parents made the mistake of buying me a copy of an Avalon Hill War game for my 12th birthday. Ooh. I, I went into several areas of gaming after that point for settling on collecting and writing stuff for role-playing games in the mid-80s. I didn't start actually writing professionally until about 1990 when a colleague in Portland hired me to write for his magazine. I began doing independent magazine work in the mid-90s and then did some game did game design work, founding Seraphim Guard in about oh, 2000 to do Hot Quest, and it's gone on from there. Oh, cool. Um, what games are you currently involved in right now, just away from publishing? Uh, well, whenever I go to a convention, I try to run something in the Slayers universe, which is Players is an anime is an animation series, sort of a fantasy comedy. What? And I've run Slayers in several different systems. There are two official systems for the series, both published by Guardians of Order, which I have used both on occasion. However, I've had the most success, oddly enough, running it with HardQuest. <laughs> I guess I don't blame you there. <clears throat> Um, how would you say gaming's changed over the years? Have the changes been a good thing, or have there been some changes you think we could have gone without? I think we could have done without uh, the D20 boom and the D20 bust we're beginning to experience. Hmm. But when I started out in the field, there was a lot of different stuff, but People weren't communicating with each other nearly as often. They weren't, unless they were going to a big convention like Gen Con, which they didn't get to do for several years, you couldn't really see everything that was going on. Now, the Internet has made everything almost interconnected, and it's also provided all sorts of other ways to play a pen and paper RPG. The, I ran a campaign a while back using Internet Relay Chat that went very well. And I've also been involved with play-by-email games, which are quite useful if you're using a relatively obscure system that not a lot of people use. Right. Okay, just to let our listeners... Um Excuse me. Just to let our listeners who don't know, um, Michael Hopcroft is the writer and creator of the hit classic Heart Quest, which is a game based upon shoujo manga. And uh, Michael did mention that earlier. Now, what uh, what anime uh, show or manga did you first watch or read and thought, "Hey, this would work as a game"? Was it Slayers or was it something else? There were all sorts of things. Uh, the one that came to mind immediately was a series that was really popular several years ago in the fandom 
called Ranma One Half, done the Takahashi manga. It combined extravagant martial arts with really bizarre romantic and sexual comedy. <laughs> the protagonist of Ranma One Half, as, as almost just about any anime fan knows, is a macho martial artist who, thanks to a dunk and a curse spring, changes gender whenever splashed with cold water. He is trapped in an arranged engagement that he did not want to a girl who he rubbed the wrong way almost immediately, and many complications ensue. Yeah, including the arrival... Uh, I've seen the anime myself, including the arrival of uh, many other maidens who actually do want him, but he doesn't want. Yes, because the weird thing is, after that first meeting... And after all the things that go badly between them, it becomes obvious as the series goes on that these two people are meant for each other and they just are too proud to admit it. It's the, proto- it's the prototype, at least for American fandom, of one of the most common plot lines in the genre, which I refer to in HeartQuest, in fact, as the couple in denial syndrome. The two people who are obviously blatantly meant for each other, and everyone knows it but them. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's, I, I, read about the, uh, I read about the jealousy thing in there. I was actually looking at HeartQuest the other day. I was reading about the uh, use of jealousy. I, I, I don't love her. I really don't. Yeah, I can see how much you don't love her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, I know, that, uh, I know that Tim Huntley of Demibia Games recently joined forces with your game company, Seraphim Guard, and uh, enacted a merger. How did the merger come about, and how did it make the company stronger? Well, it took the business management side out of my hands, which was a major strength, which is wait, which was a major thing because there are some elements of the business that I am not as good at as some other people would be, and put it in the hands of a competent business manager. It also gave me the line development responsibilities, which are much closer to what I'm good, which are much closer to what I'm good at. Right. It expanded the resources of the company. Uh, the it gave me the money to do some equipment, ex- some equipment expansion on my own system, my own working system, and it's paying my way to Gen Con SoCal. Oh, nice. So <laughs> you're gonna uh, run any going to Gen Con. So if any of you are going to Gen Con SoCal, look up the program manager. There are two anime-based HeartQuest games and a game of Kevin and Kel that are going that are going to be run at Gen Con SoCal that I will be game mastering. And the Slayer's Adventure I'm running is one of the adventures that's been really a big hit every time I've run it at a large convention, so you should be able to have a pretty good time if you sign up for this game. That sounds great. Now, I know from working with you in the past and through our correspondence that you and Tim are planning on a release of HeartQuest's 2nd edition. And when is this tentatively scheduled? What kind of updates can the fans of HeartQuest expect? Well, we're tr- well, the first thing is we're trying to figure out exactly where we want to go with the system. The, one of the big complaints that I've heard about the game from others is the lack of an explicit system 
for handling the interpersonal feelings between players and non-player characters or other player characters. Sort of an attempt to quantify relationships. People seem to think that's a very important thing in modeling the shoujo genre, which by its very nature is built around the emotional and interpersonal development of the characters. I've always had trouble with the idea of trying to quantify that sort of thing because it can really be difficult to model. It can get in the way of creating good stories if you have to do it mathematically as opposed to, I don't know what the proper term would be, creatively. And it's kind of a pain to figure out. It hasn't really been done well by Love any that. of the other people in in the field. Love is a game but mechanic. <laughs> what? Love as a game mechanic. <laughs> yeah. It sounds... Does that sound so strange to you as it does to me? It um, does, It does actually, people, yes. Yeah, but some people think that that's really necessary for the simple reason that it gives the players something concrete to look at in the middle of, in the middle of a campaign. Sort of like the relationship charts you see in New Type. If you're an anime fan, New Type and New Type USA are the big popular magazines in the genre, and they used to publish relationship charts of popular series showing who supposedly loves who and who is who hates who and that sort of thing. And trying to quantify that and give it a game effect is something that a lot of people have said you really need to do. And hmm. it's kind of an awkward thing to think about, mainly because how do you quantify something like that. It's Yeah, it boggles the mind, you know. Yeah, this with this character I have poor friendship, but I am superbly in love with this person, you know. <laughs> Sounds kind of funny. And especially since over the course of the campaign that is going to change. That is in effect the point of playing in a genre like this is that you're going to discover things that are going to alter this dynamic. Yeah, you're going to be doing a lot of erasing, I would think. You know, why don't you just come up with a hit point system, I guess, for it? <laughs> anyway, is there anything else uh, Tim and yourself have planned for the gaming public in the future? You mean that I can talk about? Because we're working on a couple of things that I can't talk about yet. Okay, uh, that's fine. That's fine. None of, none of the stuff that you can't talk about. Just whatever you can. Well, I can say that Tim is going to be releasing the new version of Gatecrasher, which is the, a sort of a science fantasy space setting, under right. the Seraphim God logo, sometime in 2006. And it's going to be a multi-system release with different volumes for the different systems. At least that's what we're planning now. That could change. Right. But And we are also going to be releasing a few of the multi-system books that I wrote a while back for the Mutants and Masterminds Superlink program. 
and for Spectrum Games Cartoon Action Hour system. And we'll probably be adding stats for a third system, probably Hard Quest to those. And those books are a space pirate setting called The Grand Defiance, a Sentai spoof called Hollywood Hero Team Hot Man, in which five actors are cast in the Sentai series and aren't told until it's too late that they're actually going to be real martial artists fighting real villains. Ooh. And <laughs> that would be hard on an actor. I built the whole concept around what if Adam West really was Batman back in the 1960s? Ooh. <laughs> Neat idea. And the third book in the line is Cute Fighters, which is a magical girl campaign setting. And it has some neat little things about it. It's set in Japan, obviously. Right. Well, not obviously. You can do an American set magical girl campaign. It'd look different, but it would still be viable. But well, just just do it as a just do it as a bad English dub by, uh, um, like Sailor Moon, and uh, <laughs> you can you can have a good supplement that way, huh? Actually, I would like to see, and I'm actually and. Actually, I'm seeing this in the webcomic field, which I imagine we're going to get to later in this conversation because of my new because of the book I just released, which is based on a webcomic. But mm-hmm. I am seeing some interesting things um, done on the webcomic field in particular with American-style magical girl settings. There's one in particular that I'm following extensively called The Watch, and that's W-O-T-C-H, a deliberate change in spelling and a deliberate pun, which involves a girl in California, I believe California, I'm not sure exactly where in the country it's supposed to be, who gains extreme magical abilities, and about the comedic and dramatic complications of what happens when she tries to use them. Sounds like fun. And it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a comic with a sort of a mythology, a very interesting story, very interesting storyline. They've dealt with dimensional travel, they've dealt with a lot of gender identity hmm. concerns, because one of the heroine's habit is to change the gender of her friends when she gets annoyed with them. Yikes. Uh, it's referred to as kagurling, by the way. Ah. And turns out that one of her is that one of the guys she hangs out with who had a fetish for red-headed girls seems to be happiest when he is a red-headed girl. Ooh. <laughs> sounds like a, sounds like a webcomic guy. Wonderful thing for his self-esteem, let me tell you. No, oh, I bet it does. Sounds like a sounds like a webcomic I read called Venus Envy, redheaded person who wants to be a girl. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Only Venus Envy is about a character who is actually going through the transgender process that one would go through in the real world to change one's gender, which is much more complicated and much more embarrassing than simply bang you a girl. 
Yes, it, yes, it is. I, I had the uh, wonderful experience of dating a transgendered woman. I'm, I'm rather familiar with the, <laughs> with how that is. Now, besides HeartQuest and shoujo manga, since we went ahead and gone into the uh, web comics thing, uh, the newest sensation is Kevin and Kel, which is based upon Bill Holbrook's online web comic. Now, what was it about what was it about web comics that made you think of the novel idea of making Kevin and Kel into a role playing game? Well. I first encountered the strip as a result of an ad that the book publisher had put into the 25th issue special edition of a furry comic I'd been reading called Chant of the Panda, which is the story of a bisexual theater manager in Cedar Rapids, in Cedar Rapids Iowa. Oof. I read, but I was... I started reading the strip, and I've been a reader of Bill Holbrook before. His strip, Safe Havens, is syndicated to Portland. And as I kept reading on and on and seeing the world he was developing, gradually I thought, hmm, this would be a good RPG setting. It has a grounding of sorts in the world we're familiar with, and yet, it take, and yet there are totally different dynamics going on the whole predator-prey interrelationship, and these really strong characters in the center of the Duclaw family, the center of the Duclaw family and the people they're close to. It struck me as a really good game to do, so I started the process of getting the license from Mr. Holbrook, and eventually we worked out a deal and with about nine months' work and the able assistance of Jamie Borg, who turned out to be one of the best rules gurus I've ever worked with, we got the game out. Hmm. Yeah, long, yeah it, was, it finally did come out, and, and uh, I was able to get a copy of it, and it looks great, I might, I might add. Thank you. Now, I've actually found... I found accounts of you being called a visionary and a genius because of Kevin and Kel. In fact, I, I actually saw that on RPG.net, I think it was. Now, for those who do not Ew, know... I've never seen that. You never saw that? <laughs> no! No yeah, one some... has ever called me a visionary or a genius to my face. They've called me several other things, none of which I can repeat on a podcast, but they've never called me a visionary or a genius. Yeah, well, it's there. Just <laughs> and I'm sure that I'm sure the thing's behind well, your back, too. But... Look for it later. <laughs> now, for those, who don't, for those who don't know, can you give my listeners a quick background on the webcomic and what to expect from the game itself? Well, Kevin and Kel is the story of Kevin and Kel Duclaw, a married couple in a township called Domain on an alternate world where there are no humans and all animal species have been uplifted to sentience. This occurred about 20,000 years ago and is quite deliberate. And... Kevin is a rabbit, and Kel is a wolf. This is a problem because traditionally wolves eat rabbits. Yes. And the strip is the story of the family that came together because they were married. Both Kevin and Kel had children by their previous marriages. Kevin had an adopted daughter named Lindisfarne, who was a raised as a porcupine, but turned out she was actually a hedgehog. And Kel had a son 
a wolf cub with fox genes named Rudy. And when the strip started, Kel was pregnant with Kevin's child, and <laughs> eventually she gave birth to their daughter, Coney, who is a rabbit with a carnivorous and rather lusty appetite. Lusty for food, that is. And just about anything that moves around is food to Coney. That must raise a few eyebrows in domain. A rabbit that eats meat. Rabbits that eat meat, rabbits that can marry a wolf and live. There are all sorts of things that do about the Duclaws that raise eyebrows. That's part of the point because they because they are apparently, or at least according to one very important character, their relationship is going to be a key to protect to saving the world. Ooh. But they have no idea of this. That sounds pretty, that sounds pretty amazing there. Are there a lot of uh, mixed marriages in domain? It's be more than there were. There have been several is that have taken place during the run of the strip. Uh, there's the George and Danielle, the for example, and there is a long-standing thread in the storyline about the species registry, which basically has to determine to which species each person belongs, and the growing resistance to the species registry in relation to the growing number of children of mixed species. Right. Now, from the copy you gave me uh, that I got for review, I see you chose the action system. Uh, what made you decide on action? I remember when we were first, when you were first starting out, you originally wanted to use the fudge system, but uh, you later switched over to action. Uh, what made you decide on that finally? If I, at the end, it came down to a combination of what I could get a decent license for, and action is one of several systems that is substantially open content. The one good thing that came out of the D20 revolution is that several other systems have adopted the op the open model as for distribution and proliferation, sort of the RPG equivalent of the Linux open source movement. Yes. And the other thing was that there were certain things that I could do in action that I couldn't do in D20, and it would have been more difficult to do in Fudge. Hmm. Yeah, it would have been difficult in Fudge, since Fudge is kind of more uh, <clears throat> more of a toolkit. Action seems to be, uh, you know, you kind of have everything right there, don't you? Yeah, although we did several alterations. Uh, the damage save mechanic that we include in Kevin and Kel is new to action. It originated with Green Ronin's acclaimed Mutants and Mastermind superhero game. And we've adapted that mechanic to action because it saves an enormous amount of trouble compared to trying to track damage in a game with, where the emphasis is very much not on combat. So, hmm. Neat idea. 
is that is that particular mechanic is that open content or is that uh, just for the game just the for Kevin Kell? Itself, the mechanic itself, I believe, is the adapt. It's hard, particularly since adapt since the crossover to the action system. I have no reason to believe that the damage save mechanic is protected and. Green Ronin, of course, is using it extensively. They used it in Blue Rose. They're going to be using it in 220. So, and given the growing popularity of Mutants and Masterminds, I expect we're going to see a lot more games adapt adopting this particular mechanic. Yeah, I can imagine, especially in especially with like slice of life games like Kevin and Kel or like Heart Quest, even um, you know where violence isn't a common everyday occurrence. That's, that would seem to be a logical mechanic to have. Oddly enough, I think it was designed for just the opposite reason. <laughs> in the superhero genre where it originated, the amount of damage dealt by, in a, by a blow was so extensive, and the amount of punishment that characters would be able to take so large, that the accounting in itself in a standard D20 situation would have been nightmarish. We're talking characters with hundreds of hit points, potentially, oh, yeah. in a D20 environment. Now, you mentioned mutants and master... Uh, speaking of mutants and masterminds, um, you have you have game systems that are, like uh, with Cute Fighters and whatnot, coming out for the mutants and masterminds licensed. Uh, has the release of the second edition... Of mutants and masterminds, is that cut, has that set you back uh, very far, or is it just kind of something you it's can take in stride? Things because it's delayed things because we're because Green Ronin is not going to be approving first edition releases for a while because they want the second because they want the new material to support the second edition, and there are substantial enough changes in second edition that it's some it's a conversion that you're going to want to do. Now, I haven't seen the second edition rules yet. I understand that there was a preview at Gen Con Indie, and I'm sure I would have gotten one there if I'd been there, but I was not so lucky. So <laughs> no. I'm going to have to wait to see it until either I can talk, I can come up with the right package to convince Green Ronin to send me a copy, or I buy it at the store or at Gen Con SoCal if it's out then, the same time everyone else does. Right. Now I have to admit, going back to Kevin and Kel, um, the webcomic itself is a lot of fun. I did notice, though, when I have been reading the archives, that there have been on occasion human characters uh, interacting with the furry characters of Domain. In Kevin and Kel, can a role player play a human character in the game version? It'll be difficult, for the simple reason that the that our world and Domain Earth exists in a sort of a balance that, in fact, there was a long, in fact, there was a, an important storyline last year in which that balance was unintentionally threatened by the long, a human, and was the dupe, and was their equivalent of a character on domain who had died. And 
as a result, the balance was upset, and the pro and the process ended and ended with a very important supporting character having to basically sacrifice herself to save the world. Hmm. So, the introduction of transplanted humans into domain, <coughs> and of course, these humans are going to be converted into some sort of animal by the process, by whatever process, you're never going to see a human that looks like a human in domain. They would they would turn it's into their equivalent? That, yes, like for example, Daniel Kendall, when she came through the portal, became a rabbit. A rabbit who happened to be an exact genetic duplicate of the rabbit accountant, Daniel Kendall, who had just died leading to numerous complications. Including the fact that uh, the human was actually, in fact, a meat-eater. Coming over to Domain is a rabbit eating meat now. Right. And there was a very funny strip in which, in which Holbrook played that off for a full double entendre value. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you recommend that people not try to play human characters or, or human-animal characters? Actually, I would advise against it because it would be very difficult. It would be... You have to immerse yourself into a different mindset to play Kevin and Kel to begin with. And trying to be a human character adapting to that mindset is going to be very difficult as a role-playing task. Yeah, it'd wind up being something like Victor Victoria, you know, a kind of human who's playing a furry who is a human kind of a thing, huh? Well, what kind of what kind of adventures could one expect to find in this game? Is there any adventure seeds you'd like to share with those tuning in? Well, when I was at DexCon in New Jersey uh, a couple months ago, we ran an adventure in which a time traveler from the future showed up. And... The, and it was a character that Bill Holbrook had actually created to play in the adventure, and he had a memory problem. And, of course, he was an elephant. And this led to the classic line from that game, which I know is not a Jam Master, wait a minute, there's an elephant in the living room, and everyone <laughs> is talking about it! <laughs> Neat. Now, I've seen, some, I've seen some other furry games at my friendly local game store. Uh, how would how would Kevin and excuse me Kevin and Kel compare to say like Iron Claw or Furry Pirates or Albedo? If someone owns another furry game, can they use characters to visit Kevin and Kel's domain? They're totally different types of genre. Iron Claw is essentially a low magic, high intrigue fantasy game where the characters happen to be first. And Albedo is a military science fiction game where the characters happen to be first. Furry Pirate is a pirate game, traditional piracy, where the characters happen to be first. And it's they're all various adventuring genres of various types. And Kevin and Kale is more the role-playing aspect of the situation. It's dealing with other people. It's coping with 
a world that is alien to our perception. And it's and there's a lot of comedy and satire involved in the game as is in of course in the strip. So I would so it's like it's like the difference between trying to do a Fushigi Yugi game and transplanting the characters from say Marmalade Boy into it. It could right. be done, but it would be rather difficult. Kind of messy too, huh? Uh, yeah. Particularly <laughs> given the habit Pushiki Yugi characters have of dying nasty deaths. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for answering my questions, Michael. Uh, I know my You're listeners. Welcome. I know my listeners are going to be excited with all the information you've shared with us. Just a couple more questions, too. Um, do you think you'd like to make another RPG based on another webcomic? Yes, I would. And I'm seeing a lot of really interesting things being done by the webcomic artists that would be very interesting game settings. I mentioned The Watch, which would be a superb setting. Paul Godowski's Arthur, King of Time and Space which retells the Arthur legend from four different viewpoints and four different genres, is a strip that I'm watching very closely and thinking this would be great game material. And there's a lot of web comics whose humor are directly related to RPGs, most notably Rich Burlew's Order of the Stick, which is a D&D campaign. The way D&D campaigns are actually played and is one of the wittiest comics I've read in quite a while. Hmm. And that is a and that is a bunch of characters that I would dearly love to have on the other side of the table from me as I GM'd. Hmm. That, that does sound like a lot of fun. Now, as as one last thing, um, as a shout out to the listeners who are into LARPing or live action role playing, can Kevin and Kel be used for this type of role playing, like at Furcons? I've, I haven't done it myself because I've gone to fur cons, but I've never worn the suit and I've never done anything like that. But I can see it happening. And it's t- been talked about with Kevin and Kel at other events. And it's something that I think there's some potential for. I don't know if I personally would want to put on one of those suits because they look very heavy and uncomfortable. And hot. Not to mention makes it kind of hard to go down to hospitality and grab a soda. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. All right. Well, thank you so much for thank you so much for joining us today, Michael. And uh, um, good luck with everything that you're doing with Seraphim Guard and with uh, and especially with Kevin and Kel. Thank you. Uh, let me know if you want me back. Oh, and if you and if you if you readers want to actually buy copies of the Kevin and Kill role playing game, uh, Comstars-Media.com has an online store that's selling the print edition. And if you have and if you have an FLGS that works with Alliance or some of the other distributors, you can special order it to them, and you'll get copies. How about RPG Now? Can they find it there? Yes, yes. There's a RPG Now edition. I don't know if they have. I don't know if the print version is available from them, but there is an ebook edition available to them, and the ebook has a lot of stuff in color. So 
So it's something you're going to want to get anyway because there's going to because there's a lot of color art in the book, which is a nice thing to have. Yes. All right. Well, thank you very much, Michael. Oh, you're welcome. Take care. Let's do this again sometime. Yeah, let's definitely do that. <laughs> Pretty intense, huh? Well, I want to thank you for joining us again this week on RPG Showcase. Next week, I'm going to be delving into a possible contender for the throne of Big Eyes Smallmouth. That game is OVA, Open Versatile Anime. Does it have what it takes to usurp Guardians of Order's title? Tune in and find out. I'll also have more surprises in store for you, along with a nice freebie. Keep coming back, you'll still find me at www.rpgshowcase.com, and you can still write to me at mike at rpgshowcase.com. See you in two, everybody.